This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Welcome to Inside COVID-19. I'm Jackie Cameron for BizNews. When the COVID-19 pandemic first swept across the globe and governments instituted lockdowns, many people thought the crisis would be over in a few months. But a year later, many countries are still under lockdown rules, even as vaccinations are rolled out. In a powerful in-depth report from Bloomberg, we hear how people in the world's richest nation have been coping and failing to cope with the new world order in the era of COVID-19. Also in this episode... We share an update on the role of ivermectin in treating COVID-19 from lawyer Banani Lutuli of Banani Kanyele Ka Lutuli Attorneys, who has been involved in taking the South African Regulatory Authority to court in a battle to legalise the use of ivermectin specifically for COVID-19. First, the COVID-19 news making world headlines. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. The number of COVID-19 cases worldwide has passed 122 million people, with deaths topping 2.69 million. Just under 52,000 people are reported as having died of the disease in South Africa. More than 410 million shots of the vaccine have been given worldwide, according to Bloomberg. In South Africa, just under 178,000 healthcare workers have been vaccinated against COVID-19. The US is to reach its goal of 100 million vaccines six weeks early. Europe's efforts to speed up its COVID-19 vaccination campaign now face the hurdle of damage to public trust. This comes after a chaotic week of vaccine suspensions, health scares and export ban threats. Countries across the European Union, including Germany, France and Spain, are resuming using AstraZeneca's vaccine after temporarily suspending it to investigate a possible blood clot issue. But while the European Medicines Agency has cleared the shot for use, Worries among citizens may linger. Leaders, aware of the hit to confidence, are getting their own jabs to show it's safe. Public confidence is crucial for the EU, which is trying to get a grip on a vaccine drive that's lagging the US and the UK. The rising pace of coronavirus cases and a renewed four-week lockdown announced Thursday for parts of France underscore the urgency of the threat, says Bloomberg. In Germany, Health Minister Jens Spahn said Friday the country is in the third wave of the pandemic. Cases there are increasing by the most in two months, close to a level that could trigger new restrictions. The UK did not suspend the Astra vaccine, but is also working to prevent any damage to its campaign. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who was treated for COVID last year, will get vaccinated and has said it will certainly be the Astra shot. Mauritius received 200,000 doses of India's only homegrown coronavirus vaccine, Covaxin, on Friday. This is its third delivery of shots. The tourism-dependent country ordered a two-week nationwide lockdown on March the 9th because of a resurgence in local coronavirus infections. Tourism revenue has slumped by more than 70% in the country. South Korea's capital of Seoul rescinded an administrative order requiring all foreign employees to get tested for COVID-19 after cluster outbreaks at companies with migrant workers. The city said it now only advises foreign workers to get the test. The change came after an outcry from foreigners who called the measures discriminatory and xenophobic. Russia is to produce more vaccines in India. 
The Russian Direct Investment Fund has announced an agreement with India's Stellis Biopharma to produce 200 million doses of the Sputnik V vaccine starting in the third quarter. This deal follows one with Gland Pharma to supply 252 million shots. This was announced earlier this week, and it helps to cement India's role as the biggest producer of the Russian vaccine. Norway's Prime Minister, who faces elections in September, will be the subject of a police probe after she flouted her own government's COVID-19 restrictions. Anna Solberg admitted in an interview with state broadcaster NRK that she breached national guidelines when she took part in a family gathering that included more people than currently allowed. Police will look into the matter, local media cited the Southwestern Police District as saying in a statement. Immunity BioInc will have its first COVID-19 vaccine made in South Africa by the BioVac Institute, which is a partly state-owned company. Immunity Bio's vaccine, which is in Phase 1 trials in South Africa and the US, uses a cold germ known as adenovirus 5 to act against the coronavirus. Indonesia has lifted a suspension on AstraZeneca's COVID-19 vaccine and plans to start distributing it next week, while the government will expand the current movement restrictions to five provinces to further bring down the number of positive cases and deaths. India added almost 40,000 new cases on Friday. This is the highest one-day jump since the end of November and pushes the overall tally past 11.5 million people. New cases have nearly doubled in a week as the third worst-hit nation scrambles to contain another wave of infections. Thailand will reduce the mandatory quarantine period for foreign travellers from next month but has deferred a decision on recognising vaccine certificates for easier global mobility amid a spike in global virus cases. Hong Kong's government sees the potential to relax some social distancing measures when at least 50% of the people in the city are vaccinated and the government may consider resuming hospital and care home visitations if visitors and staff are vaccinated. Health Canada says that the benefits of AstraZeneca's COVID-19 vaccine continue to outweigh the risks. Health Canada says it has assessed the available data and has determined that the vaccine has not been associated with an increase in overall risk of blood clots. France is locking down the Paris area as it suffers to contain a third wave of the coronavirus epidemic. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. Coming up, BizNews speaks to Benani Lutuli, a KwaZulu-Natal attorney with the African Christian Democratic Party, which has won a legal battle to get ivermectin rolled out as a treatment for COVID-19 in South Africa. Um, Jackie, so the papers have been exchanged back and forth, you know, where ACDP has taken SAPRA and the minister to court to seek the usage and rollout of ivermectin. Now, SAPRA has been reluctant to do that. So what they did was opportunistically, they sent out a program, what they call the compassionate program, uh, which meant that doctors would have to apply under Section 21 um, to get permission to use ivermectin, which is quite a bureaucratic process, frustrating and completely unworkable, uh, because they con- they contended that ivermectin was not fit for human use and was banned in the Republic. Now, we then filed our papers uh, with, with secured dates being the 29th, 30th and 31st for the oral arguments we argued. Now, I didn't get a call. I'm the attorney also of ACDP in this matter. I got a call yesterday um, by surprise attorneys that they want to chat to us uh, on the developments. 
now, it turns out that on Wednesday, there will be, and due to the pressure of ACDP and others, they, they've literally conceded to the usage and rollout of ivermectin, and they will be raising the product on, on Wednesday. So we then discussed the draft order, and the draft order essentially covers everything that ACDP has sought by way of relief in the court. It's a major breakthrough. Um, for the people of South Africa because we've believed and been very adamant that Avimectin can assist in this uh, pandemic. Um, We've seen it from other governments. So it's a huge victory for us. Can anything happen before this registration of the drug? Can something still go wrong? Can it be taken to a higher court or is this now a done deal? Well, remember, uh, because the matter is set down for 29, 30 and 31. Of March. Which Yes, we were going to argue the substance of the application. But now they've conceded and they've come now and said, look, we're going to roll out Avermectin by, by using this product uh, that contains Avermectin. So they've consented to the order that we have sought. So this is now a settlement as opposed to a directive from court. So we've agreed then that it's going to be made an order of court so that you know we don't need to go to court on the 29th to the 31st because they've literally conceded. So when will it be legal to start taking ivermectin to uh, prevent and treat COVID-19? Uh, my apologies, I didn't get the question. When will it become legal to, to, ta- to start taking ivermectin as a prophylaxis? Or well, from Wednesday. To, from from Wednesday. Wednesday. And what about all the people that have been res- arrested so far for using ivermectin and prescribing it? Yeah, I think those people have to be given some kind of amnesty, uh, even though the law, normally what happens is if the law comes to effect, one needs to see it retrospectively, whether it has retrospective application or not. It would be completely unfair in this context to say those that have been arrested must continue being prosecuted when now it's legal. Uh, so there needs to be a discharge of those, and that's what we're going to be calling out for. There needs to be a discharge of all those. We have felt that those were unlawful arrests in any event, um, because of our conviction on ivermectin, and that's going to be the stance. We're going to have to agitate for those people to be discharged, free from prosecution. Why has the ACDP taken this on as its battle? Um, we, we, we're concerned about the way the government has monopolized uh, the pandemic. The government has completely not consulted on alternatives. The government has pressed on using, uh, suggesting vaccines that are untested. We know the, you know, um, the disaster with AstraZeneca rollout and what has happened. That's because government hasn't been consulting. And so we've, we've heard from other jurisdictions and we've got, you know, reports from and proof from some of the doctors around the effective use of ivermectin, you know, for treatment. And so we've, we've believed in this product and we've been agitating for it, but the government has been tone deaf. And I think science, as well as the developments now in the concession, have literally put paid to our arguments and we've been vindicated because of them. And Safe spe- for human consumption, that's been um, the discourse. And specifically, which products? Because some of these are for veterinary use, some for human consumption. Have you set out the specific names of the products that will now be authorised? Well, um, it will basically, it says that ivermectin is a product that is contained in any treatment will be used 
Um, there's been a misnomer as to whether it's authorized or not. It has been used for treatment of, of animals, as we know, and we know that it's safe for human treatment. It's a matter of dosage. So whatever the doctor, and that's in the uh, purview of the doctors themselves, when they prescribe a particular dosage, then, then we know that's, that's safe. You know? So we, we're saying any product that, that has ivermectin, which is what they are doing now on Wednesday, is safe uh, for treatment. And the doctors can get to the realm of specifically the amount, the quantity, the dosage, etc. This is a major game changer because the government has taken so long to roll out vaccines. We've got the COVID South Africa variant. How long do you think it will take to start rolling out ivermectin as a treatment? Effectively. <laughs> Effectively, we compounded from Wednesday. Uh, because remember, the doctors, the, the, the pharmacists have the product. It's not like it's going to be bought somewhere. We already have the product. It was just being used um, illicitly because it was not regulated. It was not legal. But now, not a matter of having a proper government scheme. That's why we've been against uh, the mobilization of any intervention. Anybody can roll out. If private sector is available, we, we shouldn't just leave it for government. So anybody who can combine it, it can definitely be rolled out. That's our stance. Bongani, this isn't only a victory for South Africa, but in other countries, including Britain, there have been uh, scientists pushing for approval of ivermectin. Is this a world first that South Africa will now regulate and approve ivermectin for use in fighting COVID-19? Absolutely, absolutely. But I think we are now aligned with the norms um, of some of the countries. I mean, if you look at the EU developments around AstraZeneca vaccine, they've stopped. Germany, I think, is the latest country that has also uh, put the program to a halt. Um, So that means really more countries are looking at alternatives and, and, and others that haven't been reluctant to look at um, ivermectin as an intervention are starting to look at it. Zimbabwe has always been talking about it. Brazil um, has been rolling it out. So it was a matter of political will for South Africa to join those that um, that are rolling it out. Who in the ACDP has been pushing this? Well, uh, firstly, the entire ACDP has been from the NEC level. Our president um, actually gave a press statement when the IFP had, had threatened to take the government uh, to court over uh, ivermectin, and they didn't. And the ACDP said, look, all political parties must support the, the, the IFP, and let's all, with like-minded parties, join. They then uh, slipped through the cracks, and then we took over the challenge, and we took, we took um, the government to court, and here we are with the results. So it was a collective uh, decision in the ACDP from the president um, having the... Con- the entire buy-in from the NEC. So it is an NEC ACDP decision on ivermectin. You've been listening to Bongani Lutuli, the lawyer who has been driving the fight to get ivermectin approved for use against COVID-19 in South Africa. Bongani, are you an advocate or an attorney? What's your correct title? The correct title is attorney. Attorney. Well done. What a, what a, what a coup. Indeed. Thank you so much. This is one for the CV with the public interest, you know. I'm, I'm, I'm running my own practice, so it's, it's actually quite good. We are blessed and honored to be part of such a change. Well, you probably saved millions of lives by doing this. Thank you. I'll try and, <laughs> and remember that in those times where I need encouragement. Thank you. It's been a year since coronavirus was declared a global pandemic. 
In that time, our lives have changed dramatically. Bloomberg reporters Emma Court and Nick Carollo investigate what this year has been like for people across the US and how things could change. A year ago, my day would start with a train ride alongside thousands of fellow commuters into Manhattan. Once I got to work, I might get pulled into a meeting or two or have lunch with a source. I would grab coffee with a colleague and after work, get dinner with friends. In other words, it was all pretty normal. Because I write about healthcare, the novel coronavirus had been on my radar and in my reporting for weeks at that point. Still, the infectious disease seemed far away, at a remove from daily life. That changed suddenly. One Thursday morning, the train cars were emptier than ever before. Hours later, city and state politicians declared a state of emergency and put restrictions on gatherings. New York City ground to a halt. Now my commute is from one room of my apartment to another. Zoom calls have replaced meeting rooms and after work plans involve watching my houseplants grow. The pace of work and life has slowed, even stalled. Everyone has experienced something like this over the last year, a dramatic shift in the way we work, live, and spend time with our families. We've been collecting stories for the past few months about this change, and we want to share them with you as the pandemic enters its one-year anniversary. I'm Suzanne Evans-Wagner. My name is Betsy Sneller. Wagner and Sneller are both professors of linguistics at Michigan State University. So the Michigan Diaries Project came about as a way to test what the effects of the pandemic will be on language for speakers in Michigan. So getting these audio diaries where people just tell us about their day or their week is really rich data. You know, the the mundane ways that life has been changing is really valuable for us when we're going to go analyze how their language has been changing. At the beginning of the pandemic, nobody knew what to call it. We didn't even know what to call it. Participants themselves were calling it anything from the current situation to Miss Rona, to Rona, to coronavirus, to COVID-19, to the pandemic. Um, And one thing that we found in our diary entries is that as time went on, the whole community kind of settled in on, okay, we're just going to call it the pandemic. That's the term that we're going to land on. So one thing to know is that lexical items, words to describe things, lexical items change a lot, especially when there's a new thing that occurs. And we saw this at the beginning of the pandemic, particularly that there was kind of this explosion of new terms, mass call, um, quarantine, all of these different terms related to like, oh, we're doing like Zoom happy hour, things like that. Baker's Hotline, this is Amanda. How can I help you? Um, my name is Amanda Schlarbaum, and I'm a um, 
I'm a shift lead on the Baker's hotline, uh, as well as the customer support side too. What I basically do is um, I answer a lot of questions. Some of the um, some of the bigger questions that come in about orders. When I'm doing Baker's hotline things, I definitely take uh, calls for baking fiascos and and such, and how I try to help troubleshoot that. Usually this time of year, spring, like going into spring, late winter, we kind of slow down. We still get a fair amount of calls, but it's not as crazy as like holiday where everyone's baking for the holidays. And like we came in and it was, our phones were just, just wild. Like it was, you know, 20 calls holding and everyone is asking what kind of flour they can use. You know, they're making sourdough. How do they do that? Um, what can they feed their sourdough? Cause they don't have the kind of flour we're suggesting. It definitely it was almost an overnight change. Like it was so fast. Anxieties were definitely running pretty high. People would say, you know, I can't find bread. So I'm now going to have to make all of my bread. And so then they'd want you to walk them through how to do that. Like how exactly to make a loaf of bread. And so um, I do think there was definitely a lot of panic going on and then just overreaction to small baking problems that we would definitely talk them down and be like, you got this. You, you can do this. It's not going to be. It's not going to be the end of the world. We feel like a lot of our calls are a lot longer now because people are either lonely or they're tired of talking to the people in their house or whatever because they, they just start talking to us about everything. So it's it's definitely kind of learning how people deal with deal with things has been interesting for me definitely. My name is Mike Builder. I'm the CEO of Jackbox Games. Um, Jackbox Games is a uh, independent developer and publisher. We make party games that you play on your television, but then you use your mobile phone to uh, to join them and play. And they saw a real huge spike in uh, gameplay and interest and traffic to our website, um, purchase of the games. People usually play Jackbox Games when they're together in the same room with a game up on a TV screen. But that also changed during the pandemic. So people realized pretty quickly under the pandemic that, that you could launch the game on your computer, have a Zoom call, and just share the screen of the game and still have a really fun party environment, a social interaction with a ton of people over VidCon as if you were sitting in the same room together playing a party. When we were seeing this kind of interest in tracking happening in March and April last year, I mean, that was a huge eye opener to us. Like something unique is happening here. And, you know, prior to quarantine and, and you know, people staying at home, um, people would play our games over VidCon. I think entertainment as a whole has, has you know, aside from maybe the box office, home entertainment um, has definitely seen quite a, um, a boost out of this home quarantine. Um, people are looking for escapism. They want to watch TV. They want to play video games. They want to be entertained. They want to be taken out of their, their quarantine moment. Um, and so my industry, be it the video game industry, has benefited from that. Here's Betsy Sneller from the Michigan Diaries Project again. At the beginning of the pandemic, it was kind of new and, uh, you know, people would say, oh, I saw this new sign, the, the neighborhood park is closed or this new thing happened and there was a lot to talk about. Kind of starting in August, September, um, 
people were feeling sad. So we have a lot of diary entries actually of people saying, this is really boring. You guys are going to be really bored. And then in the background, there's these big other things happening in the world. By August, people were also thinking about back to school season and wondering whether kids would be able to go back in person. I feel like people are going to be sick of the cold air and not know that they're sick. Okay. And the mask, sometimes I can't really hear with the mask, but I, can, I can't really hear through mask that well. So what kind of things that do you think that you could do to be safe if you had to go back to school in the fall? Social distance. Social distance. Do you think that might be hard at school? Yeah. 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 I've also been trying to think of like stuff to make my Zoom meetings better and stuff because when you're at school, it's kind of boring. So I, so some of the things that I'm going to do is that I'm going to use slime and I got some slime for my birthday. So I'm definitely going to be playing with that. Obviously not like making a huge mess, but like away from the computer, but I'm going to just kind of be playing with old party or something just because that's a fun thing or like fidget spin or something. That way I don't get really bored doing Zoom meetings because it's kind of boring. My name is Dr. Jesse Gold. I'm a psychiatrist and I see healthcare professionals and college students. And I work in St. Louis, Missouri at Washington University in St. Louis, where I'm an assistant professor and director of wellness engagement and outreach. I think people are definitely sicker than maybe they were before. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, I think we had a lull where people were sort of adjusting to the new normal kind of in this fight or flight mode where they were just kind of I think you would just say like making sure they had food making sure they had water making sure everything was safe and they didn't even really think about their mental health and even at the beginning we were sort of like I guess we don't have that many patients we're okay and then it took off pretty quickly and especially in healthcare workers where what they're doing day to day has been so different and not at all what they're used to, you know, healthcare workers in general, when they sign on to do what they do, didn't really think that they could get sick themselves or bring home the illness to family members. And so that's a big change. They maybe would see one person die a shift, if any, and have seen just people dying and dying and dying. So I had a patient that is really struggling tell me that it ha she had called 20 places to try to get a therapist and nobody had openings and I could like feel my body physically sink when she said that and I was really just taken aback by that and I know very much that it's also not the therapist's fault and that I've been talking to therapists a lot and they're really struggling they they also have been taking extra sessions, working on weekends, taking their old clients back, doing all of this extra stuff that, you know, is like flipping over backwards to do as much as they can to accommodate more and more people to fill in the broken gaps of the system. But the system still can't fit all of these people and they're still calling 20 people. Right. I've 
would have told you before COVID that I probably had 10 patients or something that I would go to sleep and worry about of my like 150 or so, you know, it's not the case anymore. It's much closer to like over half of them, I would say. I think, you know, part of that is that I, you're not seeing movement on them improving and whether that's, you know, the meds not working and so you want to change it or whether that's you can't medicate away a pandemic and you can't medicate away grief and you can't medicate away job loss and schooling from home and work from home and all of this stuff compounding. Here's another Michigan Diaries recording about that. I'm just struggling in general with COVID right now because there are a lot of things I haven't processed. Like, it's just everything has been so heavy. Like, it's it's first of all really hard for me to be um, so isolated from people. Like, I never thought of myself as a social person, but... During COVID, I've realized I still need that contact with people and, um, you know, just seeing my friends in person. So that's been a real struggle for me. Um, And so I guess I just really haven't been processing things well, like just not working through my emotions with that or thinking about it a lot. Plenty of people also weren't working from home this last year, including at pharmaceutical companies, where employees were busier than ever. Here's Stefan Bonsell, the chief executive officer of Moderna. So we were made aware of the virus between Christmas and New Year of 2019. Uh, we got the sequence from the Chinese government in you know, January the 10th put online. By the 13th of January, we had the vaccine design lockdown on the computer. It was all in silico. We never touched the physical virus. Uh, 42 days after, the team uh, shipped to the NIH the vaccine. And on March, uh, I think the 13th, we started, uh, or the 16th, we started dosing uh, in the first phase one at the NIH. Uh, in July, July 27, we started the phase three. And December 18, the vaccine was authorized by the FDA. So in 11 months, we went from nothing, not even knowing the sequence of this virus, to getting an authorized vaccine. How could you develop a vaccine so fast, I think is the question. And I think there's a few things. Because we're in a pandemic, uh, there were a lot of cases. You need people to get sick, unfortunately, to compare to people who got placebo. When we inject mRNA in people's arm, we never give them a drug. We give them an instruction set, a piece of code, a piece of software for your body to read that instruction and to make, in this case, the spike protein of a coronavirus. And when you're going to make a spike protein yourself in your body, well, your immune system is going to see that protein, which is not natural. It's not a human protein in your body. 
And so the immune system is going to be upset and it's going to make antibodies. So that if later you get a natural infection of a SARS-CoV-2 virus, you will already have an antibody in your body that will bind to the virus, neutralize it, and so it will prevent it from getting inside your cells to self-replicate and make you sick. 2020 was a historic year in terms of getting mRNA as a first approved product. Very few people were even aware of what mRNA is, uh, even in the pharma industry. And I think the world in the next you know, months and quarters and years is going to start more and more to see the benefit that, that people are going to get from many, many mRNA drugs coming to them. My name is Nita Kadir. I am a pulmonary critical care physician at UCLA. I'm the co-director of the medical ICU, and I was the co-director for the critical care COVID effort at UCLA Health this past year. So I take care of patients when they are critically ill and in need of intensive care. I also see them in my follow-up clinic, um, patients who have um, them being patients who have survived critical illness and are coming back for follow-up. The mainstay of treating ARDS and treating COVID is still good supportive care. Don't get me wrong. Sometimes we are <laughs> running to the bedside with a crash cart. Absolutely, we're doing that. But yes, a lot of it is preventing complications. So I think supportive care doesn't get its due because they people hear it and they think it means like chicken soup and naps, you know, <laughs> but a supportive care in the ICU essentially amounts to supporting the body, often with invasive measures um, and giving time for healing and avoiding complications while you are supporting the body with these invasive measures. And um, it's it, that still, I think, sounds much more simple than it is, but it is actually quite a bit of work. I don't think survival is talked about enough. Um, and I, I, I do think there's far too much talk about death. And this is not to discount death and the over half a million deaths that our country has experienced over the past year. Um, but there are many more people who will survive than who will die. And we need to know how to take care of those patients. Um, we need to know what to expect. So um, when people um, survive in ICU hospitalization, whether it's from COVID or from any other critical illness, um, the road to recovery can be long. It is not always for everybody, but it frequently is long. You don't, you don't leave the ICU the way you went in. Um, that, that is certainly fair to say. So um, sometimes patients go from the ICU to the medical ward to home, but more frequently um, in the setting of um, needing, you know, needing to be on invasive mechanical ventilation, needing to be on a ventilator. There are um, psychologic issues that they can experience. So anxiety, depression, PTSD are not uncommon in the post-ICU population. Um, there, there's also a lot of, a, a lot of muscular weakness from inactivity, which is one of the big reasons patients need to go to rehabilitation afterwards. My goal initially in the pandemic was just like really trying to lift everyone's spirits, like just go in with like, 
I, I would joke that I would go into the ICU with the energy of a hype man at a hip hop show. Like just try to get people like revved up. Like we're going to do this. We're going to get people through this and it's going to suck, but, <laughs> but we're going to get to, we're going to save some lives and we're going to be okay. And that level of energy and enthusiasm, it's just really difficult to sustain over months and months and months. And while we've, we're all working so hard and have seen some difficult things. So in the fall, things sort of started dying down and we thought the worst was over. And then <laughs> December and January happened. And it was, I mean, whatever little surge we had in, um, in the spring, summer, it, it was nothing compared to December and January. In December and January, we had to pull in multiple backup teams for quite a long period of time. We had COVID patients in many ICUs. Um, we were using non-ICU spaces and converted those to ICU spaces. That was, that was pretty rough because a lot of fatigue had set in at that point and it just had gotten a whole lot worse. Um, things have gotten better over the last few weeks though, I will say considerably better. I certainly did not anticipate that we'd be dealing with this a year later. I absolutely did not. I remember one of my friends said that back in the spring. She said, I don't think this is going to be over until we have a vaccine. And I was like, no, that just, that can't be true. It's going to be a few months of, it's going to be horrible. And then it's going to get gradually better. And I mean, <laughs> and she was absolutely right. Cause here we are a year later. Um, and still dealing with it all. Um, and at least we have a vaccine now, but that was the first major glimmer of hope for me. This is finally a real signal that there's an end in sight. close your Inside COVID-19 podcast. Until next time, I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News. This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery.